There's this one house on my street that longtime neighborhood residents call the Brown House or the Brown's House. It's actually not brown. It's gray. But it's called the Brown House because the family that used to live there had the last name Brown. And this house was notorious about five or six years ago because neighbors knew it as a drug house where people would come not only to buy drugs, but to use them too. Here's Matt Zone, the councilman for the neighborhood until 2020. That was an old crack heroin house where women who were being prostituted and abused and um, they were being shot up with heroin by day. They were forced on the street at night. Anyway, around 2014, the local black club organized an effort to try to stop all this. They worked with then-Councilman Zone, as well as the Cleveland Police Department and the Cuyahoga County Prosecutor's Office, to document the activity that was happening in the house. And then, in August 2015, the court ordered the house to be boarded up. On the same day that crews nailed plywood to the windows and the doors, police escorted three people from the house in handcuffs. A few months later, the house's owner, Sean Brown, was in prison and the house was in tax foreclosure. An investor bought it out of foreclosure, renovated it, and in 2019, sold it to a young family for more than $300,000. We tend to think of the reasons people leave a gentrifying neighborhood as being very straightforward. Housing prices and rents go up, and people angrily or sadly leave the neighborhood because it's too expensive. Or maybe in some cases, we might think that some of the people who leave are happy because they get to cash in on the gentrification, laughing all the way to the bank and maybe a retirement condo in Florida. But there are a lot more variations than that, almost as many as there are people who leave. And usually, as you'll hear in this episode, the emotions aren't all on one side of the spectrum. Anger, sadness, happiness, gratitude, they all often coexist right within the same household and the same person. Why people leave, how they feel about it, and how the people who move in feel about their role in neighborhood change. That's on this episode of Inside the Bricks, My Changing Neighborhood. The Brown House is a pretty extreme example of how much a single house can change in a gentrifying neighborhood. But what's typical about it is that we usually don't get to hear the whole story of what happens to a house and its occupants before and after gentrification. So I wanted to see if I could get a fuller picture, not only by talking to neighbors and city officials about how they felt about the change, but first and foremost, the people who used to live there and the people who live there now. Hi, how are you? what's going on? Good, how are you? Good. This is Ricky. Ricky. Ricky? Ricky? Yes. I got together with my collaborator, Ricky Moore, to visit the couple who lives in the house now. Their names are Keith and Caitlin Lashinger, and they also have a toddler who's just a few months older than my own son. Where should we sit down? Wherever you guys, Wherever you guys feel more comfortable. It's all a little awkward at first, and we make a few minutes of small talk to try to break the ice. There's also some actual ice-breaking, too, as Caitlin, a consummate host, makes me and Ricky some glasses of ice water from their fridge. 
As all that's happening, I see that the house itself is immaculate. The interior is all stylish white and gray surfaces with playful splashes of color in the form of throw pillows and toddler toys. There's no way anyone could guess at its troubled history. We settle onto some couches and chairs in their open plan living room, and Ricky starts out by asking how they came to pick this house in this neighborhood. Did you guys live in the Detroit Shoreway area prior to here? We did. Uh, so we lived over on Franklin Boulevard prior to buying this house. She explains that she and Keith started out living in a house she'd bought nearby when she was still single. Once they got together, and especially once they decided to try for a baby, they realized they needed more space. So we started looking and said, like, it's very important to us to stay yeah. around this area because okay. we wanted to be in the city. Yeah, absolutely. I ask if once they found the place, the two of them felt pressure to act quickly because the market here, or in general, was hot. We didn't feel on the buy side, at least with this property, that we needed to act quickly on it. This had been listed for quite a while. Um, and from what we understand, the, this home in particular has kind of, a, shall we say, a, a history to it. Um, so I don't know if that scared people away or what was scaring people away from it. Caitlin says their realtor disclosed to them early on that the house had a difficult history. The sellers had to disclose that um, there had been a death in this, this home. Um, there had been an overdose. Um, and so I'm not sure had there not been a death that the other information would have been shared with us. Um, I actually um, appreciated knowing the full story um, so that we weren't blindsided hearing it sometime later and became in fully aware of what we were buying. And so uh, we knew that and we talked about it and said our neighbors are going to love that the house is really changing for the good mm -hmm. and it's improving the neighborhood. And so uh, and we felt like, you know, we could kind of change, change the energy of, of the home that, you know, we would, we would fill it with love and babies crying. Uh, <laughs> Ricky then shares that the bad stuff that happened here is not the whole story of the house. They were really nice family. I mean, they were rough around the edges like a lot of people were, but they were nice people. And then it just seemed all of a sudden things just started to, more types of people started coming over here. And, you know, actually there was a time in this neighborhood where like like drugs, like what ran rampant mm, in this neighborhood. Through the, yeah. Um, so it, I guess they kind of got caught up in that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, things started to change. And, but I love, I love that you guys knew about it and you guys weren't so apprehensive about it because you knew what you were going to do with the house which was fill it with love and create wonderful memories here and stuff like that. So that's amazing. Yeah, Good for I you guys. That way, that's what we had hoped that mm -hmm. would be how we would be received Absolutely. on the street and in the neighborhood. And I'm glad that you kind of helped round out a little bit of the story of the family that was here before. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because all I knew of them was uh, the negative aspect. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. To know that even with that family, there was a, a positive time oh, here yeah. too. It actually has me feeling a little, a little emotional. Yeah.
like it's really easy to kind of vilify people once they're in that place as like bad people and they, you know we need to get them out of the neighborhood and stuff and well, and that's never it's, things are never that simple Sometimes or, you need to get them out because it, you know with addiction comes crazy stuff like stealing and vandalism and you know it's it kind of really changed the dynamic in the neighborhood you know ricky goes on to say that it was around that same time that he started noticing just how quickly the neighborhood was changing including the moment he told me about in the first episode of realizing he could not afford the food in the restaurant where he worked keith asks ricky how that feels like what has that been like and who who are the new folks moving into the neighborhood and Right. And kind of what are the positive and negative dynamics right. of that? Thank you for asking me that. Um, yes, I am starting to acclimate myself to it by choice, you know, because um, hmm, I'll say that I'll start off by saying that I don't, I never judge anybody, you know, but I feel like the neighbors don't really know each other. Like we know who, we know who's next door, but we're not like, you know, um, I'm, I have been used to, hey, I cooked a pot roast here, you know, get this to your mom or like, or even was like, get over here and help me with these groceries. I don't even live there. You know what I mean? Or just like, just, just things where you really felt that no matter where you were, that everybody looked out for each other. I don't say this in the moment, but that sense of casually being a part of each other's lives, sharing food and hanging out and even helping watch each other's kids. I very much experience that happening here. I wonder why. Is it because there are more and more people who come from backgrounds like mine? Is there something about having young kids that draws people together for support? Or just the fact that I've pushed myself to meet a lot of my neighbors through working on this podcast? Probably it's a mixture of all the above. But I accept that people come from different areas, different backgrounds and stuff like that. And, uh... You know, I'm getting I'm getting used to it, and I'm um I'm I was uh, telling Justin I want to get out there a little bit more, and you know, understand. You know, to me, the term that I would choose to describe what what is happening to a certain extent is gentrification, and when folks like us choose to live in a neighborhood, I mean, I I really struggle with this, um, and I think about it a lot. The way that I make peace with it is that, like, we very much want to be a part of the neighborhood and it feels diverse. Mm -hmm. And I don't want, like, I want people who are renters to live in the neighborhood. I want multifamily homes to remain in the neighborhood. Um, So I want all of that. At the same time... Mm -hmm. I am part of a dynamic where, like, I'm pushing the price of homes up in the neighborhood. And, you know, so those two, <laughs> those two ideas are working against one, one another. Um, the way I make peace with it is I say it is better for Caitlin and me to raise a family here in the city of Cleveland mm-hmm. and pay taxes here in the city of Cleveland and spend money in the city of Cleveland mm-hmm. than it is for us to go live in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. Just like morally. You know, with starting this conversation or becoming vocal about it, I always wanted to preface by saying that 
I love what's happened in the neighborhood. I do. I love that it's uh, it's more. Um, I still feel that there's still diversity, not what I'm used to, and I do see that the new people that are moving into the neighborhood, some of them they they want to live in the city. They want to, like you said, uh, pay your taxes here, live here, all that stuff. So, I mean, that's really good. But then you get into, um, there are people that, that don't, you know what I mean? And that, and that, and what I say is they'll move to Cleveland and get mad when Cleveland happens to them. (laughs) (laughs) That's so great. So, I just, I think it's it's just the attitude. And I got to, you know, I heard a lot of really great things about the process of you guys moving in here. And it, it sounds normal to me, you know. Keith says he believes neighborhood leaders like the current council person, Jenny Spencer, and the nonprofit neighborhood development organization are doing what they can to make sure that this place does remain diverse. For example, by building new affordable housing. But he says he's also waiting and seeing if those leaders will be brave enough and effective enough to try to stop so many high-end luxury projects from happening so that they don't completely dwarf the number of affordable options. There are choices that are made Mm -hmm. that have that effect, and people know darn well what those choices are. And if they keep making those choices over and over and over again, Mm -hmm. then you can't at the end say, oh, jeez. I had no idea that was going to result in people being pushed out of the neighborhood. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. I definitely felt like Keith and Caitlin have grappled with a lot of the same questions that my family has. And I'm glad that Ricky got to fill them in on some more positive memories of the house and the Brown family ones they might not have known otherwise. But in addition to talking to the Lashingers, I wondered what became of the Brown family, because that's another part of the story we don't always get to hear. What happens to the people who leave a gentrifying neighborhood? The way I always hear the story talked about now is, yay, we cleaned up the drug house, we got rid of the problem residents. But that's really far from the end of the story, of course. Did the family manage to get help after they left? Or did their lives get even worse? And how much, if anything, did their being forced to leave the neighborhood affect their lives now? I didn't have much luck tracking down the Browns at first, but then I did manage to get a hold of Aaron Brockler. He's the criminal defense attorney who represented Sean G. Brown. When I contacted him by phone, Aaron Brockler started out by giving me some sad news. He couldn't never get a control of the addiction, so fortunately he's, he's gone. Brockler told me that after leaving West 76th Street, Sean G. Brown moved in with relatives in the booming suburb of Avon, a place where a lot of young families decide to live because they feel it's safe, really far away from the crime and chaos of the city. Fortunately for his new neighbors, Brown did not recreate the disruptive activity of his life on 76th Street. I asked what effect, if any, losing his house had on Brown. A ton of my clients have uh, opiate addictions, but Sean was in a unique position because he was one of the few people that actually had an asset like a home, you know what I mean? Um, Most of these clients, unfortunately, are um, 
you know, either financially dependent on their parents or just kind of hustling to, to make a buck here or there. But, um, you know, I'm sure that him losing what he worked really hard for only further mired him in depression. But, um, you know, it didn't um, – I, I don't personally believe that him being displaced from his home had contributed to his demise. Usually when it comes to addiction – in order to successfully contend with it, you have to change the people, places, and things in your life. So most people um, that are serious about recovery will try to leave that environment because you, you cannot heal in the same environment that helped create the disease. So I, I think that relocating, displacing, it's while drastic, I mean, it's necessary for to protect the neighborhood and sometimes the person from themselves. The story of the Brown House is an extreme example of displacement, of someone being physically forced out of their home. But I also wondered about other subtler stories of people leaving this neighborhood, people who were not pulled out of their homes in handcuffs. How did they feel about leaving? And how much did they look at their decision as theirs versus being the result of pressure? My name is Jasenia Lewis. Well, we moved into the neighborhood um, and my dad purchased the house in 78 and was 76. And we lived there for over 40 years. Um, I should say my parents did. Jasenia Lewis was six years old when her parents moved to the neighborhood from New Jersey. Her mom worked at a battery factory at the end of the block. That site is now Battery Park, a development of upscale condos and apartments. Her dad was a carpenter who did a ton of work in his off time fixing up their house. It was it was nice growing up because we all all the kids in the neighborhood, um, you know, went to the same school. So it was nice. We had a lot of family who lived on the same street on 76. There was like maybe five family members. So we kind of took over the street. So it was it was just like a, a, a Puerto Rican neighborhood. <laughs> Jasenia moved away when she was 17 to start her own family. But her parents kept living there until her mom passed away a few years ago. At that point, Jasenia says she and her dad decided to put the house on the market because it was just too big for him by himself. And they were in something of a hurry to sell because there was a house for sale across the street from Jasenia that they really wanted her dad to buy with proceeds from the sale. You know, when he he told the realtor, this is what I want to sell the house for, the, the realtor said, no, you will never get it, not that, at least not that fast. So, you know, he, at the end, you know, he ended up getting a little less than what he wanted, you know, um, because that is the up and coming, you know, area now. What was it like for your dad selling the house after so long? It was it was really sad, you know, because he did a lot of work and, you know, he did it himself. And, you know, there's tons of memories, especially my mom's memories. Um, so it was it was really sad for him to to sell the house. I think it, it hit us all. It was hard on us, you know, but he knew it was time to just kind of let go and start a new chapter, you know. At first, she said that sadness followed him to his new place. Um, it took him, you know, quite some time to get used to the house. He didn't like it at all. He 
said this was the biggest mistake in the world. I should have never sold. Uh, the other house on 76, he was really confused and sad. But, you know, he, he really loves it now. You know, the fact that he knows I, I'm across the street and, you know, he's really good friends with his neighbor. I asked her how she's felt watching the neighborhood change over the years. She said on one level, it's nice to see her old neighborhood looking so good. But also... I thought something was being lost because a lot of our, my family members, uh, they all left. They left the neighborhood. Um, so the, the neighborhood started to change a lot. Do you think that people left by choice or did they feel pressure to leave because it was being gentrified? A lot of people on that street right there on 76 left for other reasons. I don't think it was more, you know, we couldn't afford this. I think they probably just moved and it was time to move on. You know, like a lot of my aunts had and said, it, yeah, it's time to move on, you know, and a lot of friends just left the neighborhood. Time to move on. Those words made me think back to the indirect pressure to leave a neighborhood that Stacy Sutton talked about in the second episode. The official term for it is exclusionary displacement, where people leave not because they're priced out per se, but because they now feel uncomfortable or out of place. At the same time, I wanted to be careful not to think about Jesenia Lewis and her friends and family as victims, because she didn't talk about herself or them in that way. Instead, she described her own family's decision to move as being their choice, one that had a lot more to do with the circumstances of her and her father's lives than feeling alienated by the growing yuppiness of the neighborhood. And in the end, selling the house allowed her aging father to move in across the street from her. Some of the same complexity around choice versus pressure came up for me in talking to another former resident. The way that the younger people think versus the way us folks think that's a big difference because what makes the neighborhood how it was years ago when the neighbors came over, they didn't give a shit. They'd put a chair out there and sit and smoke a cigarette and everybody had a good time. These folks that are moving in, these young yuppies, I'm not, I'm not talking about you, Justin. <laughs> you know, they're not all real friendly. That's Jane Volker. And I got to say, my conversation with her was one of the most fun I had while working on this podcast, while also being really thought-provoking. Jane Volker bought her house in the neighborhood around the same time as Jesenia Lewis's family in the late 1970s. She worked as a nurse in a nearby hospital, and she and her husband raised a son here at a time when two doors down lived a pimp. Chicken man, they used to call him. Why did they call him the chicken man? I don't know. I don't know why they call him Chicken Man, but I don't want to know. I don't pick. And, uh, you know, I lived down in there, raised my son in that mess. But you know what? It wasn't, it was bad. But after all, I got to know the prostitutes. I got to know everybody. That's what she loved best about the neighborhood, she told me. How everyone talked to each other. The lack of pretension. But over time, she says she felt that changing. One time, a few years ago, she said she was standing outside her house when a newer neighbor walked up and fired a question at her. Well, what are you going to do with your house? You know, like, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm putting windows, a roof, and probably siding, and this and that. And I'm thinking, listen, your house don't look that great, so just be quiet. <laughs> In other words, she was trying to hint if we were going to put fix the outside of the house, because she, probably she didn't like looking at it. That's the impression I got. Back in the day, 
people wouldn't do that. People would say, come on over, even if your porch was falling off. They'd sit on your porch. Now they look at your porch and say, oh, oh, oh. Well, see, there's the difference between then and now. In the 1990s, Jane and her husband moved into a new house in Avon, the same suburb where Sean G. Brown moved after his arrest. But they held on to their place in my neighborhood, too, and rented it out. Sometimes they'd switch, rent the suburban house, and move back to my neighborhood for a while, just because they missed it. More recently, they were even thinking of retiring here. They took out a loan and put in all new windows and a new roof. They wanted to keep going, to put on new siding and redo the front porch. But by then, COVID had hit, and they were both out of work. No one would give us a loan. That was a major reason why we sold it, too. We couldn't finish it. So we decided, well, you know what, this is, well, we're getting older. We have a beautiful home in Avon. So we decided, well, sell it as it is. A suburban developer bought it for cash. And uh, the real estate agent said, oh, well, he's going to give the house to his son, and the son will have fun with it. I thought, oh, what a spoiled little brat. (laughs) No, I should say that. (laughs) It was a decent price, Jane said. But most of the proceeds went to paying off the loan they'd taken out for the windows and roof. I'm sure they'll make it really nice looking house down there. I can't even drive down there. You know that? It's terrible. I just can't because I'll probably start crying. <laughs> it's terrible. Well, I have a lot. You know, when you live there all those years, Justin, it's just, it's, it's like home. And yet, you know, I gave it up and, well, that's the way it is. And I couldn't finish it. That's what killed me, that I we couldn't finish it because we might have moved down there. We were thinking of maybe doing that, but forget it now, you know. Alongside the sadness, though, Jane Volker holds positive feelings about what's happened in the neighborhood. She's glad there's not as much crime. And the money she made in rent helps her live in a house she and her husband really seem to love in the suburbs. In other words, like Jesenia Lewis, she doesn't see herself as a victim here. I also wanted to look at a story where no one is leaving. Instead, they never move into the neighborhood in the first place. But I found out even stories that at first seem like classic case studies of privileged newer neighbors keeping out quote-unquote undesirable people can be more complex than they seem at first. Madam Chair, based on the large volume of testimony given today. The story of Lean In Recovery Center is an example. What you're hearing right now is from near the end of the story. It's from a short video I found on social media of the Board of Zoning Appeals for the city of Cleveland denying a zoning variance that would have allowed construction of a new building for men in recovery from addiction. A group of about 15 people watch as the board announces its denial, and their reaction is triumphant. Thank you. This happened in 2016, before I moved into the neighborhood, so I wasn't a first-hand witness. But from interviews with people who were around and from emails that circulated at that time, it's clear just how pitched a battle erupted over this place, complete with lawsuits and crowdfunding campaigns and shared rides to City Hall. At least one woman who lived in the neighborhood at the time watched all of this with a growing sense of discomfort. Why, as a community, would we be fighting back against someone having an opportunity to begin their journey of recovery 
in a positive setting in a new fabulous facility. At least one resident of the neighborhood watched all this unfold with a growing sense of discomfort. And it ended up being part of the reason she moved away. Beth Wood had rented across the street from me for about 15 years when all this went down. She was a nonprofit theater artist at the time. It was just this, it made it very clear in the moment that, wow, this is now a gentrified, predominantly white, predominantly of financial means neighborhood because they're responding like a suburb, right? Of people who are of, of a certain measure of wealth and they're like, well, we don't want people in recovery in our neighborhood or we don't want people who, you know, are, are transitioning out of incarceration. And that felt like such a significant shift in that neighborhood. It really pushed me to start thinking longer term around the best kind of neighborhood for me personally. She ended up buying a house in another neighborhood on Cleveland's west side, one that is not gentrifying and that she said feels like my neighborhood did when she first moved in, non-judgmental and welcoming of everyone. But another one of my neighbors told me the story was not as simple as rich white people wanting to keep men in recovery out of the neighborhood. We're not NIMBYs. We don't advocate against things that really help the people who need it. Abby DeMeo was a co-chair of my block club at the time this battle happened and did a lot of the organizing to block the rezoning that would have allowed Lean In to open. The term she used, NIMBY, that stands for not in my backyard a person who opposes just about anything new in their neighborhood, sometimes because they think it'll bring in new neighbors that they don't want or hurt their property values, and sometimes just because it's, well, new and different and something the NIMBY didn't think up themselves. But Abby DeMeo says that is not her. This wasn't helping anyone who needed it. This was a chance for a guy's family to make a ton of money off of the least people who are in, having challenges, but they're going to be coming from all over the country. It was a national referral. It wasn't helping people in our community. And it was also going to make a, if it didn't work, it was going to be a, make a bad name for any future sober living um, nonprofit that might try to come in. This was totally for profit. It was not the right thing. She says Lean In made little or no effort to build a relationship with neighborhood residents before trying to build a large new building that would have dwarfed all the single family and two family houses around it. You're coming into a community you've never asked to meet with anybody, you don't know a darn thing about us, and your architect is going to say, hey, this is the most you can have and the least you have to give back, and that's what you go with for your first introduction to a community. I don't think that makes us NIMBYs. I think that makes us um, aware of who our neighbors are going to be. I mean, because you put a, you know, buildings of that scale in our neighborhood, you're going to have a significant effect on our neighborhood. And showing that how little you care about our neighborhood from like pre-arrival doesn't bode well for you being a great neighbor going forward. After the neighborhood won at the Board of Zoning Appeals in March 2016, Lean In Recovery Center appealed the decision to the Cuyahoga County Court of Common Pleas. The court took Lean In's side. In this really scathing decision, the court said neighbors' concerns, the ones that drove the zoning board's decision, were just veiled excuses for keeping out people that the neighbors didn't trust and didn't want living nearby. 
To prevent 30 men in recovery from moving into a neighborhood of thousands was, quote, illegal, arbitrary, capricious, unreasonable, and unsupported by the preponderance of evidence, the court wrote. By the time of that decision, though, Lean In Recovery Center appears to have cut its losses and decided to move on, not just to another neighborhood or city, but ultimately to another state. It eventually opened in Missoula, Montana, where, according to its website, it runs hiking, whitewater rafting, and skiing expeditions for the men who live there. The center did not respond to my request to be interviewed for this podcast. Now, that same site has been bought by another private developer who wants to build, you guessed it, luxury apartments. Abby and some of my neighbors are fighting that plan too for different reasons that we'll touch on in a future episode. But speaking of developers, what responsibility do they and house flippers have to the neighborhoods they invest in? Are developers and house flippers always the bad guys? It takes money to do cool projects. So with that comes, you know, sometimes this conversation about, you know, gentrification and raising people's property taxes and things of that nature. But I believe with an earnest heart and what I'm doing and what the team I'm on is doing. That's next time on Inside the Bricks, My Changing Neighborhood. Inside the Bricks, My Changing Neighborhood is an IdeaStream public media podcast. It's written and reported by me, Justin Glanville, and edited by Mike McIntyre, IdeaStream's executive editor. Sound design and production are by John Nungesser. Thanks also to producer Drew Mazius. Our director of strategic content initiatives is Natalie Pillsbury. Mark Rosenberger is our chief of content. Our music is by local musician Aaron Snorton, with additional music from Ketza, Scott Grayton, Popoy, Lobo Loco, and John Watts from the Free Music Archive. Visit us online at ideastream.org slash inside the bricks, where you can sign up for behind the scenes newsletters and fill out a survey to give us your thoughts on this series. Until next time. <laughs>